So Peyton, I'm always interested uh, when I drive by a business, usually like a local business or a smaller business or not something like super corporately owned, how there's often like words, like marketing words on the the awning or on the sign, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm always kind of interested in what those words are. And, And in the town I live in, there's a hardware store. There's very few stores in the town I live in. There's a hardware store that has one of those old, it's like an old downtown with all these brick buildings and there's the awning outside. And on the awning, it says tires, hardware, auto parts, paint. Okay. And it's like, that makes sense. That's all hardware store related terminology, but it's, it still seems kind of random, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, and maybe this is cause I'm not a handy person, but like hardware, that seems very broad. And maybe that's the point of it. I don't know, but I always kind of just think it's like, how did they choose those words? You know what I mean? And I have a one that always sticks out in my brain is I was on a trip in Wisconsin in college and we were driving and Wisconsin's like cheese land, I guess. And there was a store, big, huge store in the interstate. It said two things. It, it didn't say the name of the business, didn't say anything about it. It just said cheese fireworks. <laughs> and I thought that was super funny because it's like, well, I know what they sell, right? They yeah. sell cheese and fireworks. And I also understand why, because like when you're going into Wisconsin, like you're not allowed to have fireworks in Illinois. It's it's two things people care about, yeah. right? Wisconsin cheese, whatever. But it's just like such a random thing to read, right? Like cheese, fireworks. You don't even know what store it is. You just know like, oh, you know the cheese fireworks place off the yeah, interstate, sure. right? Pretty funny. Um, but there's an even weirder combination that I found out earlier this week. It's a company that I've known of for a long time. Uh, I, I've, I think everyone's known of it for a long time, um, but it turns out they have like an interesting, uh, an interesting spectrum of things they sell. To my knowledge, it's been an appliance company. Microwaves, washers and dryers, ovens, stuff like that, right? General Electric. You know that? GE? Yeah. They make... I've had a microwave. We had an oven. Seriously, like they just make these kinds of things. Washers and dryers. That's what I was under the impression they made. But I recently found out there's another category that they're involved in. Military-grade heavy artillery. No way. No way. They make the M134 minigun and the GAU-8 Gatling gun. Like, these are, like, big, fancy, like, Call of Duty mounted on top of vehicle guns. Like, on helicopters, on cars. GE, same company, makes that stuff. Like, crazy like is this even real military weaponry is i had it, no idea yeah. is it hard to fault them that general is in their name no I mean, they didn't say they're, they're not specific electric that's to be and to be fair i know a lot of companies do a whole lot of business like on these like enterprise level things where you don't market because like mm-hmm. pe- if you need to know you know so like it doesn't surprise me that much i just couldn't believe that such a big appliance in my mind appliance company did such crazy stuff but but picture this i can see it now we drive down the road and you see an awning over a business that you don't know what it is, and it says, washers, dryers, miniguns. Welcome to the Factoid Podcast. You didn't ask for it, but we're going to tell you about it anyways. My name is Peyton Gessel. And I'm Chris Humphreys. Chris, I've had some close calls with snakes in the past year. Okay. And the first one was actually at a campground when I was in Joshua Tree National Park a few months ago on vacation. Our camper van had a little camp stove in the back. And our first night in the park, we had went, we had woken up very early in the morning to go out hiking. We come back and we decided we were going to make some tacos. And we had bought a lot of ingredients for them and we're getting ready to fry up some vegetables. And it, I don't know if you've ever cooked on a camp stove, but you can actually, there's a lot of utility there. You sure. can, you can make something good. So 
I'm getting ready and I'm starting to pull ingredients out. Amy's cutting them all. And then I have, I'm facing towards the back of the van as I'm starting to fry things up. And out of the corner of my eye, I see something in a shrub nearby and I turn and it is a snake. And I do not know what kind of snake it is. I've looked up since then. It was brownish, orangish, and it could have been a rattlesnake from what I understand. Sure. Rattle, rattlesnakes are pretty big in that part of the country. And I don't know who was scared more, though, me or the snake, because both of us freaked out and <laughs> I jumped in the van and he jumped back in his little bush. Sure. And then I waited for a few minutes and eventually he he had the courage to come out first. So then he slithers out slithers under our van and then i think like well he's you know checkmate he's got he's got us trapped (laughs) and then i wait a few more minutes and he was gone and never saw the snake again so thankfully crisis was averted in that situation and then a few weeks after that i had another close call at a trunk or treat that i was doing around halloween time and our trunks theme was the animal kingdom which it was Kind of a last second idea. Sure. Uh, so we found a bunch of stuffed animals that like a friend had from their when their son was younger. Uh, so then like in the corner of our closet here, I've got this king's robe at the end. Okay, that, there it is. Yeah, it, it, it it's a very cheap robe. And then I think I had like this golden goblet that I had from like a joke a long time ago. <laughs> and I was the king of the animal kingdom. But we were all set up and we had all these animals and some of our friends dressed up as different animals to fit the theme. And our friend's uh, four-year-old daughter, Lena, came over and was hanging out with us. And she's old enough that she will participate later on in the night, but she was helping us give out candy. And she loved all the stuffed animals that were in the back of our trunk. And she grabs this very large snake. that It looks very cartoony. It's like a plush toy. Um, but she decides that she's going to have the snake give out candy to all the little kids who okay. are coming by. But she was worried that people would have problems with the snake and be afraid of it. Yeah. So she made sure, uh, in her words, that it, they knew that it was a nice snake. Sure. So she is grabbing suckers and like sticking them in the mouth of the snake with her hand. <laughs> and she is flailing the snake around at kids her age, yelling, <laughs> I love you. I love you. Because <laughs> that's the way to let the, everyone yeah, know. Yeah, that's well, a nice is, snake. It's a nice yeah. snake. Yes. So in that situation, though, everyone was aware that there was a snake around, that yeah. there, there was no way for people to not know, basically. And I actually learned that that is an innate human skill, that we are incredibly good at identifying snakes. Mm. And this is called the snake detection theory. Other people call it the snake detection hypothesis. So note that it's not the snake. The, note that it's not the snake detection truth. We think it's true. Okay. And I wanted to kind of explore what is the snake detection theory and possibly how that works. So the snake detection theory states that over the years, through the process of evolution, humans have gotten so good at identifying snakes that snakes have actually helped humans' vision skills develop over time, hmm. and our sense of sight is our best sense, specifically because of snakes. So if, if you think about it, the, the people who aren't very good at identifying snakes are more likely to get bit, more likely to die. And sure. the, the skill of being good at finding a snake before it finds you is something that like over time, those are the people that are going to live long. They're going to teach their kids like how that all works. And it, it made me wonder like, what if, 
you know, imagine a world where snakes smelled very weird and that was like the big thing and that like our sense of smell got really good and we were good at smelling snakes and then like <laughs> i was thinking about then then like what's the point of having a dog does dogs do dogs become man's best friend if humans are good at smelling yeah. so like are we good at smelling snakes and then like i don't know like a parrot become bird becomes man's best friend cuz they can see better i don't know my mind kind of was going out of That's control but i was like it's very interesting it's so crazy that the vision and the snakes, like that's what has kind of made us what we are today. So how does this work on like a scientific level? As we've said that over time, humans have been identifying the snakes, but um, what that has done to our bodies, I thought is really fascinating. There's a region of your brain called the pulvinar region. And that region is very focused on like how you identify things with your vision. And if you look at like a cross a cross section of like the human brain compared to other animals' brains, our pulvinar region is massive compared to a lot of other ones. And part of the theory is that because our region got so big over time, that like this is why we're so good at identifying objects. Hmm. And I was recently reading like a study in Japan about this, and they would show these images that were slightly obscured, and they had like they blurred out or they like kind of added some noise into these images of different animals. And the goal of the study was to show like a super blurred out image of an animal. And then they go in steps of 10%. And then they say like, call out the animal as soon as you could see it. And consistently snakes, the first one animal everyone sees, even compared to worms. I thought that really? was crazy because yeah, like a dog or like, think about like, animal shapes a snake isn't a very common shape it sticks out like because it's like curvy and long and mm -hmm. skinny and stuff but yeah like a worm looks like the shape of it's almost the same but somehow yeah. we see it like so much faster have you had any like run run-ins with snakes like do you do you have any any evidence to prove this i or? i i see snakes all the time and like it's funny because i always wondered like are there way more than i'm aware of or am i seeing all the snakes that are around and I don't know what the answer to that is. Uh, maybe, maybe it's both. Maybe, but but I know that like like I I specifically remember times where I'm walking and you see that and it's like oh I, there's a snake there. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So I definitely think I'm aware. Um, I have run-ins with snakes through the years. I remember as a kid, one of the first times it was ever like scary to me was my grandpa had this swing he made like on a big tree, a walnut tree. Okay. And we were swinging on, it was just like a board with ropes tied. It was like a huge tree. We were swinging on it. And then we looked down and there was a snake. And so me and my sister were like, oh, I ran away. Right. And then we just threw walnuts at the snake. As one uh, does. Yeah, just over, like over and over again. And so that was kind of like a, a run in with them. But like, I've also seen an abnormal amount driving, uh, mm. like, which is weird, right? Because normally you, like, that's not something you would even notice. But I, very like many times I'll see it slithering across the road and be like, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? What can you yeah, do? Really? Exactly. So yeah, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm extra aware or if like a more than, more than other animals or not yeah. necessarily, but I definitely am aware of snakes. Yeah. And, and I think what, what's very strange to me is that we aren't practicing this skill all the time, that no. this is not a frequent occurrence. So in, I would think in theory, we should not be good at this, that we, yeah. we should be better at identifying, I don't know, spreadsheets or like so, some sort right. of thing that is more, we run into more on a daily basis. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't see a snake every day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, another crazy thing I learned is that it's not just the vision that affects people, even hearing the word snake 
is something that sets people off and they like people have measured just like how your body reacts when you hear the word. And obviously that's language dependent on what you speak. But the idea even, not that just seeing a snake sets you on high alert, but hearing snake is just like sets people off. It's, yeah, maybe maybe in the future we will we'll be able to smell them. Yeah, maybe like you know, yeah. I, yeah. Have you uh, have you seen that incredibly viral video from like fifteen plus years ago on YouTube with the guy just saying, "I'm a Slytherin snake." Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess I wanted to issue my first public service announcement to you. Okay. So if you are ever out in nature and you think you see a snake, never second guess yourself. You are right. And it's actually one of your many hidden talents. So we've talked about this. I'm sure if you listen to this podcast long enough, you probably know I'm not much of a sports guy. I'm not, you know, completely ignorant to all things sports. I can even enjoy watching sports. Um, but I'm, it's not something I necessarily invest a lot of time in on my own, right? But through the years, I have gone to sporting events here and there. My family are big uh, St. Louis Cardinals fans. I've been to Cardinals games. I've been to a couple Rams games. I went to high school football games and stuff occasionally. Sure. Um, but I have one specific memory of a high school football game that really sticks out in my head. And this was, I think it was my freshman year homecoming football game. And again, I don't, I didn't even go to that stuff normally. In fact, Thinking back as I was remembering this, I'm not 100% sure of the exact details because I really don't remember why I would have even gone to the homecoming football game. Like, it's just not something I really did. You didn't have a hot date? I No, I didn't. Uh, at the time, I don't believe I did. Um, but I, I remember being at the game, and during the halftime show, the band played, and I had a lot of friends in the band. They were doing their marching band spectacular. But right near the end of it, someone who I didn't actually know but kind of knew, right? I knew who they were just from seeing them, streaked across the field in the middle of the field. And I say streaked, I use it loosely because they weren't completely naked. They had a flag and they also had like some kind of thong type thing on, right? So, you know, but they were like, they were all out. I think that's close enough to count it. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, at the time I remember thinking... What? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like, what's going on? Is that real? And then, you know, everyone talked about it. And it was, I don't know if it, he was a senior. I don't know if it was like a senior prank or if it was just a let's do that, whatever, right? Right. But I remember that's like stuck in my head. It's like, man, I can't believe that happened. But I have some other interesting memories with sports um, where kind of funny things have happened that are have been interesting to me. And it's and it and it kind of starts with the fact that when I go to a sporting event, I've gone to Cardinals games, like I said, I I, I have as much fun analyzing the environment, analyzing the billboards, analyzing the food, analyzing the people as I do with the game, right? And no offense to baseball fans. I really am not trying to offend anybody. Baseball is like a pretty boring sport to me, right? Yes, I like like baseball, but it is also still boring. And my family, big fans of baseball, but like it just doesn't keep my attention that much. Even if it's an exciting baseball game, it's like they got six hits. You know what I mean? Like it's, you know what I mean? That's, that's probably an understatement, but you know, home runs are exciting and things are fun and and people clapping and the organ and boom, 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 whatever. It's fun. I do enjoy it. That that being said, I really still like going to baseball games, but there's another specific example of a baseball game I went to where I remember something happening. 
And like I said, I've been to quite a few. My family normally stuck with relatively modest tickets. We would go and they'd be, you know, on the top oh, yeah. tier. We'd be up up high. Same here. Like there's no point in going all out for right. an eight-year-old. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. As a family event, we, you know, we don't need to be with all the crazy sports fans. But one time, my dad got tickets from a guy he worked with to a Cardinals game. And so we just kind of made, if I remember right, like some kind of weekend trip or a weekday whatever trip. And these tickets were good. Like they were like the only time I've ever been, if I remember right, maybe even on like the bottom level you know and we were like i think in between the like on the first baseline kind of thing yeah you could you could see how many steroids mark mcguire had yeah used. you could see actual people instead of just little tiny you know moving things yeah. right and so it was really it was interesting just to be at that perspective even as a kid who i enjoyed the game but it was as baseball is sometimes a boring game it was mm-hmm. like if i remember right and this could be wrong i'm willing to admit i don't remember things perfectly sixth seventh inning it was most of the game we hadn't even got a hit yet right it was like it had been one of those pitchers duels which yeah. are like come on you know what i mean and it's like it was boring and i was like man it's and during that inning somebody on the team on our team the cardinals got a hit and it was like it wasn't a sink it was like a double or a triple it's a great hit yeah and as soon as they hit it a guy in the first row hops on the field has a flag and he runs across the field <laughs> he's screaming yeah yeah, good job. And like he immediately gets tackled and apprehended and arrested, right? Because you're not <laughs> supposed to do that. Yeah. But that stuck in my head too. And like we watched this game later on TV because I wanted to know. Like, oh yeah. Did they, they don't show that stuff. They, the announcers said like, oh, oh, there's a guy. Oh, and they got him. Like that's all it was. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. A, a little bit of inside baseball on <laughs> inside <laughs> baseball. Wasn't even trying to do that. That's funny. But um, so like I have a friend who videos a lot of pro sports and like yeah. sports broadcasts, and I know that for our local hockey team that there was some guy who was a fan who I think he became popular several years ago for being like a fairly large guy who would he was shirtless and he would dance a lot. I think maybe he would paint his chest. And okay. I think maybe the first time this happened that the, the, the camera crew puts him on and, and it's like kind of a funny thing, but then it starts to kind of blow up and get a lot more popular. Right. And I'm pretty sure they told him future times that like when that guy is dancing do not put him on the screen anymore because probably some network executive got that got right. you know got in trouble because of it and yes so i'm not surprised that something funny like that that you get to witness in person right. doesn't get allowed on tv right i sort of have enjoyed that because like again not being a huge sports fan it gives me like a reason to enjoy and to like fondly remember all this stuff that i otherwise on like i don't remember anything about any of those games you know what i mean i don't know who won or what happened right but it was like those things like have stuck out to me. It's like, oh, this is fun and interesting to watch. And I think one time like a squirrel got on, you know, like stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Just like interesting. Um, and so those are things that I really remember about sports. But today I want to talk to you about about something that happened regarding a baseball game. And we've talked about this before in, in person, you and I, about how like a lot of times our podcast topics, we come at them slightly different angles. Yours generally are like a deep dive into like maybe a historical, cultural, geographical thing and how that comes about. And mine are often like these crazy stunts or like fun events that have happened, sure. right? So today's no different. This is this has hints of our Tommy Tommy Fitz late night flight, right? This has hints of... of Philadelphia battery, battery throwers in it, yeah. Um, but it also has hints of my memories of, of a child going to all these games. Today, I want to tell you about Michael Sergio. Have you ever heard of Michael Sergio? I have not heard of Michael Sergio. Michael Sergio was, for one, big into the skydiving scene. And when you're a skydiver or when you're in some kind of dangerous job or dangerous hobby, there's a, a term that gets thrown around a lot, it turns out, which I found out in my in my research, and that is the pucker factor. Have you ever heard of the pucker factor? Uh, 
No. Okay, and, I, and it is exactly what oh. your face is making, right? <laughs> it's when you do something crazy or exciting or intense, you kind of, well, to put it mildly, pucker your sphincter, right? Okay? Sure. Like, that's, the, that's where it comes from, right? And so the pucker factor is something that skydivers deal with often and i'm going to read uh, a an excerpt from a sports illustrated article that actually talks about our topic for today and, and it from the 1980s and it says this it's a scale from one to ten it's going to be referred to from here on out as the pf so a pf 10 can be a near mythical achievement but more often it's merely terminal According to skydivers you earn it when both shoots fail when you're gyrating wildly at 120 miles an hour heading straight down and fear pucker, puckers your sphincter with such force that your eyeballs pop out of your head before you bounce. First-time jumpers often believe that they've experienced a PF-10 on that initial step out of an airplane, but unless something goes terribly monstrously wrong, the objective PF rating of your first jump is closer to a one and a half. Objective. Ob wow. Yes. Look, this is, this is scientific. Yeah. So this is, I know, I know. So this is crazy, right? So 10, pucker factor 10, <laughs> that's an anomaly, right? But today... If you were to ask Michael Sergio about that fateful night in 1986, he will tell you that it was probably at least a PF9. Who is Michael Sergio? You don't know? I didn't know? That's a great question. Well, first off, he's an actor. He appeared in a plethora of films, big screen films. I don't know if I want to say a plethora, really. Examples, Men of Respect, Under Hellgate Bridge, Revolution Number no. 9, Takeout. I've never heard of any of these, but he has credits on all these movies. They're from the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. He hasn't really stuck around in the acting game too much. He's, In fact, it, it, his, his fame hasn't hasn't really stuck with him. He only has 500 Twitter followers currently and 300 Instagram <laughs> followers. So, you know, he's not he's not a famous dude. I mean, I think this is a great way to be be like mildly famous where yeah. yeah, like no no one's going to recognize you. You aren't don't have a huge following, you don't have the risks of having right. that big following. Right. But he is an actor, right? When you yeah. Google his name, he will say actor, but it will also say one other thing. In 1986, Michael Sergio jumped from a plane into Shea Stadium where Game 6 of the World Series was being held wearing a homemade flag that read, Go Mets. He skydove into the stadium from a not-really-allowed flight, right? Yeah, He's because I think Shea Stadium... I don't know. I think it's they've torn it down and rebuilt it, but I think that's in Queens, like that, because I know a lot of New York sports don't take place in New York, like in football. the The Jets and the Giants they play in East Rutherford, New Jersey, and it's often more suburban. But like, I'm pretty sure Shea Stadium is kind of in the thick of it. Yeah, it's it's in a it's in a busy place, right? It's a busy place where uh, you're not really supposed to be flying around. And while that is wild and crazy, and that that's what really drew me to this story, it's actually not necessarily. Like the, it's not the first time that there's been a demonstration of someone jumping to a field, but it is the way that it happened um, and everything that happened and the background of the story that really kept me interested. Like, how can this happen? How can someone do this, right? What has to go into it? What had to happen before this event really could take place? There's quite a few pieces that have to happen, that, and learning about all of those are quite interesting. And unlike Tommy Fitz from our episode in the past, this isn't just a thing where you can drunkenly make a decision and go do it, right? Because no, you got to no. jump out of a plane. You can't just fly it yourself and jump out of it. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> so it even includes some other people. Yeah, you along. have accomplices. That's right. You have to have someone who's willing to really go out on a limb for you. And it turns out, I learned, that when you're in a stadium like this, in a big event, especially in something like the World Series, there are people constantly like monitoring air traffic control and all that as part of the thing yeah. to make sure there's nothing 
you know, big going on. Absolutely. I went, I would go to the Hall of Fame game when I was younger uh, for football. So that's the first preseason game of the season. And that was in Canton where the Hall of Fame is at. And I remember my dad pointing out to me all of the snipers that were around at the game. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. And that's even like a small, I mean, that is probably the smallest stadium that anyone plays a pro football game in. I mean, it's basically, there's a high school and a college that use that as Uh their stadium. So even the tiniest ones have, yeah. Because there's a lot of people in one place. You know what I mean? So I guess that just leads me to wonder, how can this happen? You've really got to have someone you trust or someone who's willing to do something pretty good friend someone who owes you i don't know right how would you find someone like that that's an important and interesting part of this story that we have to talk about about a decade earlier about 10 years before this michael became skydiving buddies with this friend he had named owen quinn and uh to make a long story relatively short quinn was uh, another jumper who had a lot more experience than sergio did at the time he kind of became a mentor to him. He taught him all the tricks, showed him all the things, took him with places. They, they would do things together. Um, but in the 70s, Quinn was somehow connected to like the construction scene in New York City. And Owen Quinn had the bright idea that he told Sergio in a little meeting they had together that he wanted to jump off, base jumps, so like jump off of a structure, right? Off of one of the twin tower buildings that were currently being built. And they talked about it and he didn't really have, a, he didn't know how it would work or didn't know how it happened. But but Sergio said, Quinn, man, you got to promise me as soon as you do this, you'll let me know. I want to be a part of this. So he said, sure. So they Right, they there, there's two towers, so one could jump off each exactly. tower. Exactly, <laughs> they could do something crazy, right? And if I'm, if I'm Sergio, I'm thinking, do it and let me know, but I ain't going to be there. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Well, three years later, Quinn calls up Sergio and says, hey man, I'm doing it. You want to come take pictures? You want to be with me? Because they're not done yet. They're still building these towers. And they're, they're over 1,500 feet tall, right? The one that, the North Tower, I believe, is the one they jumped off at. So they meet at the base of the North Tower. And they climb up. And the elevator's not working that day. Um, the construction elevator's not working. So all the construction, everybody has to go through the actual main elevator of the building. Oh, wow. And so they do that. They get up to the floor they're allowed to go to. And then they start climbing up the rest to get to the top where they get stopped by some people. But they are end up they end up being able to convince... Uh, whatever security guard, whoever was in charge that they're allowed to be where they're at because they're carrying like a roll of tar paper or something like they're supposed to be going. They have a really good disguise. Like this is the most like Tom Cruise kind of thing It sounds like a a movie, right? And all the things about like uh, Sergio's appearance say that like he kind of just looks like a construction worker or a rocker or like he, you know, he looks like whatever he needs to look like and he's done all these things and so like these guys can pull it off and they get to the top and they kind of scout out what's around because no one's on the roof because no one's supposed to be on the roof. Right. And they scout out and they see what's going on and they get to the top and they realize like, man, are we going to do this? Because like, it turns out it's not a perfect flat wall, right? Like they got to kind of run and dive. It's like a, it's kind of scary, right? And so they decide, let's do it. Quinn goes back down a couple floors, gets all the stuff that he had, parachute, all the stuff he needs. And then uh, Sergio's up there waiting for him with a camera and they get up there and they don't know what to do. And, And Sergio talks about how like, oh, I'm. I'm watching him like just say to himself, like, I can do it. I'll do it. I'm just going to do it. All of a sudden, he just runs, dives. Sergio gets the picture. He floats down. He has to fall about 50 floors before his parachute's able to open up. Right. He said he falls 50 floors. His parachute opens up. And you know how it kind of, you kind of hang there for a minute. Yes. He's like at the window in front of an office and all the people are like, terrified at him and apparently he yelled hey take a picture right this guy's (laughs) like enjoying it all but this is in the middle of downtown new york city like this is there's buildings all around he said when he was falling it felt like there's needles pointing up at him like how crazy right like this is a wild stunt and so he so 
Sergio and Quinn, they have this whole thing together. They have all this history. This happens. He ends up getting, obviously, you know, taken care of, taken away, whatever. But they remain friends through all this. And because of how they work together and how, like, I feel like that's a bond you don't lose, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's one of those things where it's like, hey, man, I owe you one. Whatever you got, whatever you need. I've got one last job. Exactly, right? And so... Keep that in your mind as we move forward. So we're going to move forward about whatever it is, eight, ten years from this point where the 1986 World Series is going on and the Mets are playing the Red Sox and we make it to game whatever. They're they're at game six, right? And so what has to happen is in game six, the Mets have to win in order to go to game seven so they don't lose because they've only won, you know, they, they're they right. they're at the point where if they don't win, it's over. Mm-hmm. And so before this game happened, Sergio decided, like, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it. This is the day. Like, he had this grand idea. Like, I've got to do it. And, and if I don't get it done, like, it's just going to go away. My opportunity is going to be gone. I won't have an, uh, an ability to do it at this place for this game. Like, I've got to just do it. They need encouragement, right? And in this article, uh, it talks about how he went to, like, this specialized store that made banners for parachutes. And he's like, I want to get one that says Go Mets. You know, I want to encourage these guys. Yeah. Well, they quote him a price and they say it might, you know, take this long. He's like, I need it quick. So he ended up just like going and buying a bed sheet and painting it. Right. (laughs) And this is what he does. And, and he's got a pilot and he's got everything figured out. He's ready to go, ready to do the jump. Well, the night before the pilot rightfully so thought about what the heck am I doing? And he calls him up and says, bro, I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. Peace. Good luck. Go Red Sox. That's right. And so, and (laughs) go Red Sox. And so Sergio's like, what, this is ruined. What am I going to do now? And he looks around. He's like, how am I ever going to find a pilot? Because keep in mind, this this plane, they're flying out from a place, a different location, like kind of a small airstrip. They have to fly like down lower than you're supposed to fly. They have to not report what they're doing. They have to have their like lights off and everything. Like they're doing things you're not supposed to do. They're oh, supposed yeah. to be in airspace. They're not supposed to be in. And so he's got to find someone. And last ditch effort, he says, I'm going to call Quinn. I'm just going to call him and see what he says. And luckily, Owen Quinn pulls through and he he doesn't do it himself, but he knows someone. He's like, I know a guy. I'll give him a call. And it all works out. And here it comes. That's the day. The next day, they fly out. They do the thing. He parachutes in. Everyone sees it. There's like crazy like reports of this online. Like you can watch it. I mean, it's in the 80s. It wasn't that long ago, right? right. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's kind of an exciting, kind of a, a good story. But obviously, he just like happened when I was at a baseball game. He gets tackled, arrested, um, and he goes to prison. And because of how dangerous this flight was, the FCC decided like we're punishing this to the fullest extent that we can possibly do. We're giving them all the sanctions they can have. We're giving them the worst that they can get. And so they put him in prison and they're, they're poking and prodding and saying, Sergio, who flew you? You got to tell us who flew you. He wasn't telling. Mike wasn't going to tell him. Yeah. He was like, I'm not doing that. And so they they decide to say, look, I get it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep you in here until you tell us. And we're going to find you every day you don't. Wow. And so he, it's like hundreds of dollars every day, right? Or a hundred dollars. I can't remember. A thousand dollars. I don't remember. But after three weeks of them constantly asking him, keeping him in prison, they decide this guy's not telling us. It's not going to happen. I guess we have to let him go because they're trying to make a big deal out of it, you know, so that you know, sure. just, just tell people you can't do this. But he wouldn't budge. He decided he wasn't going to do it. So he actually got out of this relatively scot-free. He got like community service and a thousand dollar fine. Or oh, something, yeah, that, that's great. Which is like, I mean, it's it's kind of like awesome. Yeah. You know, what I mean, like what a story. I would have loved to be there at that one. You know, what I mean, that's yeah. way cooler than just seeing a guy jump out or a guy run across the field in a thong. You know yeah, what I mean? Like exactly. how much cooler is that? I don't know this guy, obviously. Right. Um. And and I think I would like him. I think he's probably a great guy. 
But he seems to like find quite a bit of value in this. His Twitter, which I talked about, Twitter handle, Shea Jumper. Shea Stadium Jumper, right? And I looked at it. I'm talking 10 times in the last two years. He's talked about it on his Twitter. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But all that to say, I I mean, I understand. Like, that's a pretty crazy thing. That's a really interesting thing. Um, But good for him. And you got to know what means a lot to you and you got to hold on to it. So I'm, I'm proud of him. I think it's a really crazy thing. I would have loved to see it. Um, and while I may not know much about sports, I think I am growing more familiar with crazy things that happen in the context of sports. Thank you for listening to the Factoid Podcast. As a reminder, we are still doing our Christmas giveaway. So if you want to receive some of the items that we are giving for that, that we talked about in our Christmas episode, then you just need to go to chrisandpayton.fun. That is the URL, chrisandpayton.fun. And you can enter to possibly win the Kagane statue and a piece of fruitcake. You're really not going to want to miss out on that. But as always, you can find us everywhere you get your podcasts on our website, factoidpodcast.com. And you can enter that giveaway at chrisandpayton.fun. We'll see you in two weeks.